All right, welcome to uh, Irreligiosity. This is our continued attempt to lose any listeners that we may have gained over the last two, three months. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's much like the uh, LDS Church in and of itself. We have a tendency of putting you to sleep while discussing such topics. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, here we go. Um, what do we got on tap for today? What I was planning on doing, Nez, for today is bringing up a lot of the issues that the LDS Church either hides from its users or just outright ignores and calls it Mormon propaganda. Now, uh, the LDS Church, I mean, to give you an idea of how big Joseph Smith is in the LDS Church, my dad, uh, on several occasions, and the last one being uh, just a few months ago, sat me down and told me that other than Jesus Christ himself, Joseph Smith is the only other person to bring about more souls to God. That is actually, I believe, in the Doctrine and Covenants. Oh, is it? I believe it's in the section where they detail his martyrdom. Yeah, so it's section 135 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 3. Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. The only reason why Charlie knows that is because the Doctrine and Covenants bores the shit out of me. In fact, I have never, ever been able to get more than a few chapters into it. Yeah, it's a series of revelations, um, uh, put that in quotes, given to Joseph Smith. Uh, and uh, it was actually a full year. It was like Church History, Doctrine and Covenants in seminary. And that was, unfortunately, one of the years that I got. I would rather have gotten the Book of Mormon. That was the one I skipped. But I got Church History, um, Doctrine and Covenants. So I actually read the whole thing in there. You probably slept through it. Yeah, yeah, if I would have had it. I mean, like I said, I, I did go through three years of the LDS seminary. And in all honesty, I can't even remember what books were studied. That's how much I slept through or just plain skipped. <laughs> um, how would you get out of the fourth? Uh, oh, uh, that was because I skipped that grade to get to high school early. I see. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's absolutely no way I would have got out of the fourth otherwise because, I mean, as described in my deconversion story, my family was extremely religious. Yeah. yeah. Layton has done a bunch of research, and I've done a bunch of research. So what we're going to do is present Layton's findings first, and then we'll go over to mine. Mine is on Adam God. And that is, I think, fatal to Mormonism because there is no good explanation for it. Well, there's no good explanation for half of this stuff that comes <laughs> up. I mean, I mean, seriously, the, the LDS Church tosses out all sorts of answers. But when you get down to it, you actually read and start researching some of this. There's absolutely no way around it unless you just want to close your eyes and pretend that it's not there. All right, so let's uh, let's do yours. What do you got? Well, uh, I wanted to start with Joseph Smith and how he came to be the prophet. Now, uh, how? Well, that's simple. Sacred Grove, God and Jesus appeared to him. Very true. And Moroni appeared to him a couple years later. Uh huh. There you go. He's a prophet. All right. Well, uh, all that happened within the four to five years before the the Book of Mormon was actually published. Correct. Yeah, that would be eighteen teens or early twenties, I think. Alright, so what happens if four years before the Book of Mormon is actually published, Joseph Smith is arrested for running a money scam where he has these seer stones and he's trying to uh, get people's money. They actually called him 
Joseph Smith the Glass Looker, arrested and charged on March 20th, 1826, and he was forced to pay a fine of $2.68. Which seems cheap, but in those days, it was more like probably 100 bucks, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is very interesting because my parents told me Joseph Smith was arrested many times, but it was only because uh, Satan was persecuting uh, the Lord's chosen, right? Yeah. And you could tell this because he was arrested many times and tried, but he was never convicted. Yeah, and right here you can actually look up Justice Albert Neely's transcripts, and you can see that Joseph Smith was not only arrested, but he was charged and uh, right above him, Samuel May on March 22, uh, 1826. So, I mean, you can see him right in the center there actually being arrested for using these same seer stones that supposedly he used to translate the Book of Mormon. It's interesting. Um, he got a fee of $2.68. That was his penalty. Assault and battery apparently is... Uh Less of a crime than glass looking because he only got fined one dollar ninety nine cents. <laughs> That's very true. Maybe they figured because Joseph Smith was going after other people's money, they should find him. It would have been cheaper for Joseph Smith to just beat the crap out of him. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I think that's very true, but uh, <laughs> maybe Joseph Smith wasn't uh, wise enough to that, or he wasn't I'll, as strong. I'll tell you what happened was he, that he had the Urim and Thummim in his possession at this time, and he was just using it to gain some money to fund the publication of the Book of Mormon. Oh, of course, because uh, raping a family of its money wasn't good enough, so he was just trying to make some extra cash. <laughs> we well, haven't gotten to Martin Harris yet. Not yet. Oh, so uh, so you're saying that God actually uh, wanted Joseph Smith to yes. go out there and make money any way he possibly yes. could to get this Book of Mormon out God, there. God works in mysterious ways, Lee. Oh, of course. Uh, all right, well, a lot of people, especially those in the LDS religion, actually envision Joseph Smith sitting down with this nice suit on with a quill pen in his hand, and right next to him are the golden plates, and of course the Urim and Thummim, and the breastplate, the sword, I mean various paintings of Joseph Smith, all of them with the golden plates right in front of him. There's an actual description, I think, about it being a breastplate with set of glasses hooked onto it, and that was the Urim and Thummim? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very convoluted as to what the Urim and Thummim actually look like. And uh, later on, I found one source, I, I uh, don't remember who it was, but they stated that the seer stones that Joseph Smith were actually donated back to the church uh, some years ago, uh, I think late 1800s or so. Really? Yeah. I'd like to get my hands on those. Well, wouldn't it be nice to get down to that uh, legendary vault that the LDS Church has? <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, I'd like to read from you uh, something by David Whitmer. And this is, uh, it's called An Address to All Believers in Christ, page 12, given on 1887. I will now give you a description of the manner in which the Book of Mormon was translated. Joseph would put the seer stone into a hat and put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light. And in the darkness the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Thus the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God, and not by any power of man. Well, apparently... Um in that case, Reformed Egyptian is a cipher of English because one character at a time 
would pop up, and then one character of English at a time would pop up, right? Exactly. I mean, is that what we're talking about? That's, that's a cipher. It's that's ridiculous. That's what he just is stated, exactly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphs work the same way, don't they? Absolutely. Ah, of course. It has nothing it's to do a, with tones. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not phonetic at all. It's, it's just a um, s simple cipher that, uh, you know, it's directly, it's kind of like a proto-English, I guess. Yeah. yeah, now listen to this quote. It was actually in an interview given to the Kansas City Journal on June 5th, 1881. I, as well as all of my father's family, Smith's wife, Oliver Cowdery, and Martin Harris were present during the translation. He, Joseph Smith, did not use the plates in translation. Come on. If that's the case, why would he need to dig up the plates in the first place? See, that is actually something very interesting because uh, I believe it was Martin Harris. Have you heard about uh, how Martin Harris and Joseph Smith walked into the Hill of Cumorah and around them was uh, abundant bits of gold? And... I I've heard about that. They walked into a cave in the Hill of Cumorah and it was like this collection of all Native American yeah, um, swords with inscriptions on yeah. it and such. And it's the same thing. It, it begs to wonder if Joseph Smith didn't even need the golden plates to be there, why he translated, why would God even have him pull it out of the mountain? Right. If they were safe there for thousands of years. Why not just grab the seer stones? Yeah. Stick your face in a hat, see what happened thousands of years ago. Sure, it makes sense to me. Why did Moroni need the seer stones in the first place? He was burying it. Apparently he wrote in Reformed Egyptian. Why would he need a, a Urim and Thummim in the first place? Because God could foresee that we would forget about Reformed Egyptian. Oh, God. And that there would be absolutely no record whatsoever of it in any history. This story just gets... The more you look into it, the more ludicrous. I mean, it's ludicrous on the face of it, but the more you look into it, the more ludicrous it becomes. Yeah, now that's, that's the sad thing about it, is the LDS Church, they really, really play upon the fact that you should not go out and research these varying faucets of, uh, or facets, excuse me, <laughs> of, uh, of the early history because it can be convoluted and harmful to your faith. In fact, I'm pretty sure you got that when you went to a bishop concerning some of your concerns. Yeah, uh, we were discussing Adam God, it actually is one of them, and, um, he said that uh, you shouldn't look too deeply into this stuff, A, because it uh, really doesn't affect your salvation, uh, and B, these are mysteries and, and it won't be revealed until uh, all is um, made public, I guess, or whatever. The end times, I yeah, guess, when the, the kingdom times. of God has been restored, then you'll know everything. So basically close your eyes until the world dies and then everything will find. Yeah, it's a, it's a recurrent theme in these religions, you know. Don't get yourself educated because, well... Smart, educated people just don't believe this crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for some reason, uh, you know, your education has an effect on your faith. I wonder yeah. why. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so the next topic is what is actually written inside of the Book of Mormon. And it's fascinating what you can stumble across because Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon is actually writings about these two peoples, the loosely based Lamanites and the Nephites. The constant wars they have with each other, wherein they ride horses into battle. They run across elephants at times. My God, really? You didn't know I about the elephants? I don't remember that, no. Yeah, there are elephants. You can actually <laughs> discover elephants. And 
it it's it's kind of funny because I read an argument where uh, a Mormon philosopher was stating that these elephants were probably mammoths still left over from that period. However, mammoths died out in 11,000 BC, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, we're no, you're mistaken because weren't they in that show 10,000 BC? Ah. Oh, sh- <laughs> and yes. the pyramids too yes yes i'm, I'm sure a, a wonderful display there so i mean you have not only do you have just these animals i mean the horse if not many of you know the horse was actually introduced by the europeans they escaped onto the american content or continent and then spread across and that's why we have horses here today right pre-columbus there are no horses there there are kind of uh, distant relatives of horses that die out in the uh, 10,000s, I think, uh, in the American continent. But there are no horses as we know them. 10,000 years at least has gone by um, since there's anything resembling a horse. The Native Americans and the South Americans had llamas, I think. Yeah, llamas, uh, and uh, so they were, alpacas. Yeah, they were fascinated by the horses when they came. Well, who wouldn't be? I mean, you see this magnificent beast running around. So... Let me uh, let me get this. So, if there are no horses, then what exactly was used to pull the chariots that Joseph Smith says they had during that time? Yeah, a little more problematic is that uh, there's no wheels. <laughs> <laughs> they had wheels, like the Aztecs and the Incas, I think, had wheels on little toys, but they never kind of scaled up. Yeah, I believe it was in the ninth century A.D. before the wheels began to be used in certain societies. Uh, it's it's amazing. Um, yeah, you can actually read about chariots in the Book of Mormon. It's Alma chapter 18, verse 9. So before that, was it, I mean, since they didn't have horses, did they just have other people grabbing onto the front there and running in front of these chariots? Was that how they drew them? They were drawn by the power of God. <laughs> Invisible horses, very nice. I think even funnier is that um, at the end of Jacob 7, and so we're talking, I'm not sure where this is, but it couldn't be past... Uh, what, 400 A.D., which is when the Book of Mormon ended? Yeah. Uh, and I, Jacob, saw that I must soon go down to my grave, blah, 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 blah. And he's talking about the plates. Uh, and then he says, at the end of it, he kind of winds up, to the reader I bid farewell, hoping that many of my brethren may read my words. Brethren, adieu. Comment allez-vous? <laughs> um, small problem, Joseph. Um, French didn't exist in 400 A.D. <laughs> the language wasn't there. I'm pretty sure it is. We have proof of it right yeah. here. I mean, maybe or maybe Reformed Egyptian is a form of French. Maybe it was pre-French, proto-French. Proto-French. Yeah, um, yeah it's uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> so I mean, you just take a look at that, and you have so many difficulties with the actual Book of Mormon. And I mean, we haven't even really gotten started into some of this. I mean, we have scratched the surface. There's. Um, Parts of Isaiah, I think, that he copied word for word um, that uh, were mistakenly translated by the King James. Uh, yeah, the King James version, and so and that mistake was carried through. Now they'll they'll say, um, you know, he he know he came upon the Isaiah and he just uh, from there went on and grabbed the stuff out of his uh, Old Testament and moved it over, ported it over, you know. Uh, to which I say, come on, either he's translating or he's not translating, <laughs> and, and B, I think that. That pins the Book of Mormon down as a post-1700s uh, work. It has to be. I mean, if you were actually copying from another source and you find proof of that copy, then that's exactly what's happening. Right. It's is, plagiarized errors. It's proof that it was um, 
It's the whole Plagiarize. phone book issue yeah. where you insert falsehoods into the phone book to discover what's been copyrighted. Right. One of the problems I had with the Book of Mormon in general as a kid is that the prophecies in the Old Testament really have to be worked over several times and um, twisted and, and kind of brought out of context in order to, to fit, fit the situation into what we think yeah. that they're prophesying. In the Book of Mormon, it's awfully specific. They talk about the Founding Fathers and, I think, Columbus. Yes, they and, do, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's... it's and the, even the name Jesus Christ, I think, is is foretold on the Americas. And it's like, come on, man. In the Old Testament, they said, you know, his, he shall be born and his name will, will be Emmanuel. It's never directly accurate, right? 100% accurate. But the Book of Mormon is, surprisingly. It well, just seemed to me... Even as a kid, it seemed really suspicious. It was just too perfect. Well, that's just because you don't understand that the Book of Mormon is a more righteous yeah. representation of God's works. Right. I mean, the Bible is corrupt, which is why they never were given yep. the name of Jesus. That's the excuse. Are you kidding? That's really the excuse? That's the excuse. The Bible's <laughs> corrupt. That's why they needed the Book of Mormon. That's what my parents told me. Oh, you've got to be kidding um, me. I just the, pulled that out of my ass. Is the only pure uh, scripture that we have. It's better than the Bible. It's better than both the Old and the New Testament. It is plain and precious. Yeah, I, I don't know how precious it could be when he's copywriting. Are you kidding? It's the pearl of great price. That's precious. <laughs> so many things I could say right now. <laughs> All right, well, I mean, um, another thing I'd like to move into is concerning Martin Harris and Professor Anthon. Now, interestingly enough, Martin Harris wrote a letter addressed to Mr. Emerson Sir, and it was dated November 23rd, 1870, and this is what it says. I received your favor. In reply, I will say concerning the plates, I do say that the angel did show to me the plates containing the Book of Mormon. Further, the translation that I carried to Professor Anthon was copied from these same plates, also that the professor did testify to it being a correct translation. Now, this is actually something huge in the LDS Church, talking about how uh, Martin Harris took this example of Joseph Smith's uh, translations. I mean, we're talking uh, symbols that were copied directly out of the golden plates. He took it to Professor Anthon, and Professor Anthon actually stated that these were valid translations. I find that very interesting, considering... Uh, Egyptian hadn't been fully cracked yet. The discovery of the Rosetta Stone was in, I think, the like 1799 on Napoleon's expedition to Egypt. That helped, but the key, I think, was uh, the Coptic language, because they could tell what it was, but then, then it just got you the sounds. Yeah, they weren't exactly They didn't know what to. it meant, and uh, Coptic was kind of uh, verbal Egyptian that had passed down. No one could read hieroglyphs, but they still say Coptic. So once you got... The phonetics of it, then uh, was it Champollion who yeah. um, Champollion the, finished it in 1841. So we're talking a three few three years, years after. before Joseph Smith died, and and four eleven years after the publication of the Book of Mormon. So either he either Anthony is is an amazing uh, expert who was a full decade above uh, prior before, before Champollion so why is it we're not hearing about him where <laughs> Egyptologists are and he, concerned yeah he's <laughs> his place in history was robbed by Champollion or Anthon didn't say what Martin Harris thought he said 
I think you might actually have something there where uh, Anthon may not have said that. Now, this is actually something Charlie and I discovered, and this comes directly from Anthon himself. The whole story about my having pronounced the Mormonite inscription to be Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics is perfectly false. Some years ago, a plain and apparently simple-hearted farmer called upon me. Upon examining the paper in question, I soon came to the conclusion that it was all a trick, perhaps a hoax. On hearing this odd story, I changed my opinion about the paper, and instead of viewing it any longer as a hoax upon the learned, I began to regard it as a part of a scheme to cheat the farmer of his money, and I communicated my suspicions to him, warning him to beware of rogues. Now that sounds a little bit more like what would probably happen. That sounds right. Um, and if you go on, he talks about, um, he saw the kind of characters and said they were all kinds of crooked characters disposing columns, evidently been prepared by some person who had before him at the time a book containing various alphabets, Greek and Hebrew letters, crosses and flourishes, Roman letters, inverted or placed sideways, um, even had a copy of the Mexican calendar. Um, so here he is, and I can see what happened. Uh, Anthon says, well, these are ancient characters, right? Yeah, uh, yeah Anthon Greek, would Hebrew, state that. <laughs> this is a Mexican calendar, this is Roman, but it, 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 it's a mishmash. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's, it's obvious to me that Martin Harris took away from that encounter that Professor Anthon was stating that these were true characters. That's what he took right. away from it all. Well, yeah, probably what, or he could have even said, you know, Joseph Smith, he said that, uh, that uh, these are ancient characters, but they're not, you know, they're not translatable. You can't translate them. It's a mishmash of all these different languages. And, and Joseph Smith would have said, ah, but they are ancient characters, right? He did say that. Of course he couldn't translate it because you can only translate this through the power of God. Yeah. And then Harris being the simple-minded farmer that he is. Simple-hearted. Sorry. Simple I, I would say Anthony is wrong in that. He's a simple-minded yeah, farmer. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with, I mean, I feel bad for Harris. I mean, he lost his wife over this. He lost his farm over this. I mean, I feel bad for him, but I agree. I think yeah. Harris was simple-minded. So you can kind of see what happened, and I tend to believe Anthony's account over Harris's account. Anthon has no uh, dog in this hunt. He just says that, uh, well, yeah, I think this is a hoax. You're, you're going to get cheated of your money, and guess what? Anthon was more of a prophet than the prophet Joseph Smith. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, maybe we should all be following Anthon's yeah. little prophecies here. I mean, he was absolutely right. He thought it was a hoax. Someone was after his money, and sure enough... Someone was after his money. Harris dumps all this money into the Book of Mormon and loses everything. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, basically, so that is basically how the Book of Mormon came about. We have Joseph Smith with his seer stones in his hats, completely believable in my opinion. We have chariots, horses, elephants coming out of this. And, I mean, just, just over and over again, you discover all these little intricacies that make you go, what the hell is going on with this document? I mean, how is this possible? And how is this supposed to be taken as true and literal? So let's move on to polygamy, one of the favorite <laughs> topics where uh, the LDS Church is concerned. Now, uh, Joseph Smith was the one to start polygamy. In fact, uh, supposedly God had to threaten him with a burning sword in order to take wives. And then he goes and takes, uh, oh, how many wives, Charlie? Uh, Mid-30s, I think, 33 or 34 wives. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so He sure embraced it. 
Yeah, he, he embraced it full on. That flaming sword worked. Not only did he embrace it, but he was marrying other men's wives. Yeah. If you go to uh, uh, www.wivesofjosephsmith.org, it actually has a table where it shows not only the wives' names, when they were married, their ages, but also who their husbands were at the time when Joseph Smith married them. Yeah, and they don't mention, I believe, Parley P. Pratt or uh, Heber C. Kimball's wife, Violet, both of whom I believe, uh, well, Parley Pratt was on a mission when he came back and his wife informed him that Joseph Smith said that uh, had approached her while he was away and said that, you know, God told me you're supposed to be my wife. And she said, well, I'm already married, and I'll wait till Parley gets back. <laughs> and Parley was absolutely furious over this, and I believe he left the church for a while. Uh, well, I if, hope so. I believe if he had not left the church, he may have been the second president of the church rather than Brigham Young. I believe he lost his place in the Quorum of the Twelve and went from one to twelve. I think he lost his place in the Quorum, because when he got his membership back, uh, he, uh, he was at the bottom of the pile. Um, and Heber C. Kimball said the same thing, you know, Violet, he approached Violet, uh, Heber C. Kimball's wife said, he, God said we were married in the past, you know, exists, blah, blah, blah. And the Mormon story is that um, they agonized over it all night long, and unlike Parley uh, in the morning, he said, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to do, but you can go ahead and have my wife. And Joseph Smith said, uh, this was all a test. This was a test. This day your uh, salvation's been made sure, and you can keep your wife. So that's kind of what they bring up when you bring up polyandry, right? The the polygamy or polygyny where you have multiple wives isn't so much a problem as the polyandry where you have multiple husbands. Yeah. There is no theological basis on that except for Joseph Smith saying that, uh, oh, psst, they, they were coincidentally married to me before. Yeah. You, so yeah. they're actually my wife. Yeah, you know, in the pre-existence before I came to this world, uh, those were all my wives. I'd like them back now. Yeah, and interestingly enough, the uh, marriages began as early as 1827. That was three years before the publication of the Book of Mormon. Yes, yes it was, in fact. And uh, So I, I mean, wonder what the date is of that revelation of DNC 132. Okay, um, looking it up, section 132. Revelation given through Joseph Smith, the prophet at Nauvoo, Illinois, recorded July 12, 1843. This is a year before he was martyred. Relating the New and Everlasting Covenant. Um, including the eternity of plural marriages is also plurality of wives. Um, although the revelation was recorded in 1843, it is evident from the historical records <laughs> that the doctrines and principles involved in this revelation have been known by the prophet since 1831. But if you look at the website, uh, his first marriage was in 1827, four years before that. Yes, yeah, so, uh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, that's a little odd, isn't it? Yeah, that and um, fundamentalist Mormons, um, you know, really get in trouble because they marry girls that are really young. Right? Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the big issues: is these girls are are too young to make proper decisions. Absolutely, I don't know. You, you can consent to being married to like a forty year old guy when you're thirteen, fourteen years old. So, and they get that doctrine from Joseph Smith. He married girls as young as fourteen and as old as fifty eight. Yeah. Now, please explain that one to me. Why would you marry that sort of range? I can understand the young girls. I mean, young, virile women. You pedophile. 
I'm not talking, well, I guess I am talking that young. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go back on what I just said. <laughs> Let's rewind that. Let's rewind that, just ignore that statement. No, I mean, I can understand marrying or chasing after young tail, as in 18-year-old and older. Although, in the Old Testament, I believe they married very, very young, but yeah, well, they also died very young, They too. also died before their ages of 30. I mean, yeah. come on now. But, I, I mean, seriously, though, I, I can understand that portion. You're looking at a young woman. It is in man's nature, in and of itself, to spread his seed. And when you see a young, fertile woman, all of us are aroused. We're just men. That's the way it is. But how in the world... I actually prefer 10-year-old boys myself. Well, that's just because you like to take them in the showers, and slick the hair back, and then pretend they're no, eight. <laughs> I did, I did spend some time as a Catholic priest. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> if there are any Catholics out there, uh, please Just, start throwing things at the wall. We've spent most of the program offending Mormons, so I throw a little Catholic jab in there, too. <laughs> well, if we're talking about Catholic jabs, you just remind me of a great joke. So uh, why is it all the altar boar's hair is parted down the middle? Because when they're kneeling before the Catholic priest, he's got his hands on their head, parting the hair, going... That's the way, boy, right there. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Hey, well, we're, if we're offending people, we, that's the way to do it. We might have to tag this one as explicit. <laughs> wait, 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 you lost my train of... Oh, 58-year-old woman. Now, what exactly is attractive about 58-year-old woman? Uh, Postmenopausal, you can't have any kids by her. No paternity suit. Uh, sorry for all those over 58. It's, I mean, some of you are attractive. I just can't understand why you would be chosen over a young woman. <laughs> <laughs> there's no polite way to say that. Yeah, there, there's really no polite way to say that. When, when you've got two so models far, in front of you, we've, come on. We've determined that Leighton is sexist, <laughs> homophobic. He hates uh, mentally challenged people, and now he's ageist. I don't hate them. I just like to call them what they are, retards. <laughs> <laughs> and all I'm doing is pointing out the truth. I mean... 90% of the men you set in front of you, if you've got a woman 58 and a woman 18, which do you think they're going to go for? Well, um, they'll go for the 18-year-old, assuming, you know... Uh, She's good-looking? Uh, right. Assuming all else is equal, you they'll go for the younger one. And the other 10% are lying. Yeah, I'll agree with it. Maybe the older woman they figure they'll get financial status from. Aha! Which could very well be what I've it is. I've seen plenty of that on Judge Judy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Mark Twain always tried she, to marry rich. She often will look at the lady, right? And she's this kind of dumpy, middle-aged woman. And this guy's young. He's like in mid-20s. But you tell her to total dead beach. She'll say, why do you think he would want to live with you? <laughs> oh, and that may very well be it. I mean, Joseph Smith was arrested for running a money scam by seeing stuff. Well, plus he's got to support 33 other wives. I mean, my God, that's expensive. Yeah, well, I mean, you got the young, virile women. you got to find the money somehow. I would somehow. like to look into the financial statement of that 58-year-old. That is actually a very good point. If anybody out there has those financial statements <laughs> or the history of that, I would love to take a view of that. All right, now continuing down the road with, uh, with Joseph Smith and his taking many wives, there's an interesting occurrence which uh, Oliver Cowdery actually was accusing Joseph Smith of adultery with a woman by the name of Fanny Alger. Now, Joseph Smith denied this entirely, he called Cowdery a liar, 
And, uh, you know, Cowdery was excommunicated for that as well as other crimes. But then as you, uh, as you go back through the church records, you discover that Cowdery was right, that uh, Fanny Alger was actually married to Joseph before that time. Yeah, so um, Oliver Cowdery, one of the three witnesses, was pretty high up in uh, Mormonism. And you always hear about him in terms of three witnesses, and sometimes in their more honest uh, uh, times, the uh, Mormons will tell you that Oliver Cowdery fell away. <clears throat> he got into an argument with Joseph Smith, and uh, but they won't tell you what it's about. Often they don't know. Yeah, well, I'm sure many don't know the fact that it was Oliver Cowdery accusing Joseph Smith of adultery. I mean, how often does that come up? So he discovered Joseph Smith's um, plural wife activities. Uh, Joseph Smith obviously had not brought him into the inner circle and, and confided in him. Uh, so Joseph Smith was left with no other alternative than to deny the charge, right? Otherwise, he'd lose his standing as prophet. Well, hell, Joseph Smith was practicing this long before it was supposedly given to him and long before it actually came out as one of these revelations. Right. So uh, it turns out Oliver Cowdery charges him with adultery. He denies it, calls, um, Joseph Smith denies it, calls Oliver a, a liar, and he gets excommunicated. Yeah, sounds perfectly reasonable to me. And uh, interestingly enough, this is one of those underage ones. Of course, it wouldn't be underage back then. She was 16, so I'm sure that yeah. was marrying age back then. Yeah, I mean, we're talking early 1800s, so. It turns out, if you go to the wives of um, josephsmith.org, uh, she's listed as number two. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out Oliver Cowdery was not a liar. He was telling the truth. Uh, Joseph Smith was the one who was bending the truth and um, lying. Yeah, now interestingly enough, this is the man that is supposed to be a prophet of God. He's the one that is always held up high for everybody to look at and everybody to aspire to be, and yet he lied so vehemently about something that was supposedly revelation that he got Oliver Cowdery excommunicated for it. Now, to be fair, there is precedent for this. Um, Abraham, going through Egypt, lied about Sarah, his wife. He said he was his, uh, she was his sister, and that uh, got the Pharaoh in a bunch of trouble. Um, and apparently that lie was sanctioned by God. I mean, he didn't get in any trouble for it, right? Wow. Pharaoh got into trouble for for believing the lie, <laughs> <laughs> trying to bring Sarah into his harem. Well, i got to tell you, if God's uh, saying don't lie, he's really loose with the truth, isn't he? Well, in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, number uh, 93, section 93, verse 30, all truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it. To act for itself is all intelligence also, otherwise there is no existence. So apparently God is loose with the truth. This is a revelation to Joseph Smith that your truth is kind of... Um, <laughs> dependent upon the circumstances. Yeah, That's exactly much. what it says. It's pretty much. Are you kidding me? There is no black and white to truth. <laughs> it's either truth or you're lying your ass off. Yeah, there are... Yeah, I agree. There's... In some circumstances, uh, I suppose there are shades of gray, but mostly it's it's black and white. So, for example, if your significant other says, um, do these jeans make my ass look fat? That's when you say, no, your ass makes those little <laughs> jeans look full. <laughs> right, or, you know, do I look fat in this dress or whatever? And you obviously say... Cottage cheese goes well with you. Oh, God. <laughs> You know, uh, you know, lies to, to spare people's yes, feelings. Yes, or to spare the, their feelings. The classic right. philosophical argument is for all those systems that say you absolutely cannot lie under any circumstances. 
this woman comes, she's bruised, she's battered, she's bleeding, her dress is torn. Uh, she comes pounding on your door and says, my husband is trying to kill me. Can I hide here? You say, absolutely. Go down to the basement and uh, hide out. And a few minutes later, another pounding on the door, and there's her husband with this crazy look in uh, his eye, and he's carrying an axe dripping with blood, and he says, have you seen my wife around? She's downstairs in the basement. In that, <laughs> in that circumstance, uh, it is... Um, it is both moral and, I think, ethically obligatory. It is incumbent upon you to not only, you know, you don't say, oh, you haven't seen her, yeah. shake your head. You don't do that. Better in that circumstance to say, yeah, she, she, she ran down the street. Down if you hurry, you can capture her. I was her. trying to figure out what was going on, dude. I mean, you want me to help? Yeah, you don't say, yeah, she's down in my basement. Have at her. Yeah, That's immoral. In fact, could I get the video camera? This is going to be interesting. In this case, this is a lie uh, to that protect is predicated oneself. on self-preservation. Absolutely. There's no other way that you can look at this. This is a self-protection lie, and that is immoral. In this case, you really ought to say, Oliver, you're right. I was having sex with Fanny Alger. You walked in, whatever, however he found it. Yeah. Let me explain this doctrine to you. I know it looks bad. Um, but really, there's something behind this. Especially since I haven't written the Revelation down yet. I know it looks bad, but trust me, it's a revelation from God. And then take your lumps, but uh, no. I'd really like to see a picture of this Fanny Alger woman. Well, her name's Fanny, so maybe she was... Uh, a couple of hams. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, well, we've beaten the wife thing to within an inch of its life, so why don't we move on to something that... Uh, well, a quote from my dad is, he's like he, he says to me, the pearl of great price is truly a great thing of wisdom. This is funny because, you know, when the church split, when Joseph Smith um, died, and most of the Mormons went with Brigham Young, some of the Mormons went with um, what's what was called the reorganized um, yeah, yeah, was, LDS uh, Joseph church. Joseph Smith's son or something like that. <clears throat> right, Emma yeah. Smith and that sort of thing, and um, Joseph Smith's son, Joseph Smith III. They formed the reorganized LDS church, and actually they still have... Um, I think Doctrine and Covenants to this day. But they have repudiated both polygamy and um, the Pearl of Great Price. They, they do not believe that that is part of canon. It's still part of canon in uh, Mormonism. In mainstream Mormonism. And uh, I think they're right in denying that. Absolutely. I mean, they should deny everything, but you know, up to this yeah, point. Yeah, they haven't gone far enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Well, um, but because this, this book of Abraham, this book of Moses... Really, if you carefully look into it, there, there really is. Again, I said Adam, God was fatal to Mormonism. This, this is absolutely... This is pretty damning. This right was here. a nail in the coffin for me. I mean, we're talking Joseph Smith takes Egyptian documents and states... Well, actually, he's kind of forced into it. The so people let's, let's, run it to Yeah, him. let's set this up. There was a traveling exhibit. Man trying to sell off some trinkets for a rich right. man. He, he, was, he was walking around uh, like a carnival type thing, showing off... Uh, the Egyptian mummies, uh, and they had ancient papyri in there, uh, and they had hieroglyphs. And at this point, again, the Egyptian hieroglyphs have not been uh, fully cracked at this yeah. time. Uh, if if it's anyone still being knows it, on, it's at the highest level of academia. It's not certainly within the realm of Joseph Smith. Uh, or, it hasn't even reached the Americas yet. This is still over in France. Right. Right. I mean, this is um, this is a time where uh, you would need prophetic uh, intervention. To, to do this. Perfect time for education. Joseph Smith to step up to the bat and guess what his people said. Well, sure. They said, look, you you um, are a prophet of God. You have access to 
these translation stones and you can um, translate ancient documents. So this would be a perfect uh, uh, opportunity. opportunity for you to, to do this. And Joseph Smith uh, kind of hemmed and hawed and um, I think they finally dragged him to the exhibit and he said, this is not just Egyptian. This is, uh, the, this, story this is of, the story of Abraham. Yeah. And so members of the church, again, Joseph Smith doesn't have any money, so members of the church got together. They put in a bunch of money and they bought the mummies and the scrolls, the papyri that came with them. Yeah, now, interestingly enough, after Joseph Smith translated these, um, and, and, and translated again is in quotes. Is in quotes, yes. Uh, he dies and his wife actually has possession of them. And she glues them to a back of canvas along with a letter certifying that uh, these are truly the, the papyri that Joseph Smith translated as the Book of, Mor or Book of Abraham. And then she donated it to the museum. Really? There's a letter certifying that? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's how, I mean, <clears throat> that, that was one of the things, is there was a letter certifying that this is Joseph Smith's papyri. Now, there was a problem in that scholars would have loved to get a hold of this, but there was a fire in the museum, and so the papyri were lost. Yeah, um, up until nineteen-teens, uh, I think, they uh, thought that, the was it the Chicago fire that burned everything down? Yeah. They thought that it was destroyed. Uh, it was destroyed. completely destroyed. And in fact, in 1912, the New York Times, uh, they found a bunch of scrolls that actually matched what was scrawled in the back of the Book of Mormon. And the, yeah, it, was, um, it was on the flip side of a painting of the Kirtland Temple, I, I think. I was getting to that. All right, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. All right, fine. We're, we're getting up to this point. So in 1912... These papyri were still lost. They thought they were lost in a fire, and there was no way to verify what Joseph Smith said except from what was drawn in the back of the Book of Mormon. And so the New York Times actually went through the Metropolitan Museum and gauged them against what they had. And in fact, every Egyptologist there took one look at it and says, well, this has nothing to do with what Joseph Smith says it has to do. And not only that... But they were saying, well, this head here, this human head holding the knife, uh, that should be the head of Anubis. And also, this hand here shouldn't be holding a knife. It should be holding an ankh. And the guy lying on the table, his hand shouldn't just be open there up in the air. He should be grabbing onto his phallus. This is actually just a regular old book of breathings. And actually, in the mid-1800s, because they, they copied these uh, facsimiles, in the newspaper, and eventually they made their way into the back of the Book of Mormon as the Pearl of Great Price, right, at the back of the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah. So in the, in the mid-1800s, they predicted that, no, 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 this isn't a human head. It, and as a matter of fact, it looks like this human head was copied from the guy lying down and just placed on... Which it really like is. Wood I mean, carving, you look at the you look little... At it, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So they said, there's probably a hole right here. It should be the head of the jackal. That should be Anubis, um, god of the dead and embalming, I think. And the guy, right, he shouldn't have his hands up here. He should be grasping his phallus. Um, and, you know, and Joseph Smith, if you look in this, and you can grab, look it up on the internet. Um, it's fac Is this facsimile two? Facsimile number one, I number believe. Number one. Yeah. Uh, the guy's lying on the um, table, and there's four jars um, underneath him. And there's a guy standing above him with a knife. 
And they said, there's probably a hole right here with a knife too. Uh, and there's probably a hole around the hands because that's where these guys had to kind of freelance with their wood carving yeah. to get the facsimile. Now, we'll actually have links on our site showing you where a lot of these images of the papyri are so you can go and visit them. Right. So Joseph translated this as Abraham uh, being uh, about to be sacrificed, right? Yeah. It wasn't even Isaac. It was Abraham on Pharaoh's table, I guess, In about fact, to be sacrificed. In uh, fact, there was an angel that came down and saved him from that sacrifice, yeah. I believe. And he um, gives these, uh, for, the, for the jars underneath, which are the canopic jars, which if you know anything about Egyptology, that's where their organs are held, right? They yeah. take the organs out and they put them in the canopic jars of the four sons of Horus. So he says these are four gods and he gives these weird names for each of them yeah, that does. have no relation to anything that anyone knows about in fact, in no Egyptology. Egyptologist has ever even heard of these <laughs> names. So, so it becomes very, very difficult because uh, they predicted this and at this time, um, they were still believed lost. They, they were still believed lost. It's probably in the 1850s, 1860s. Uh, and they, they said, look, this is probably, they called it a lacuna, a hole in this area. And when they found them, lo and behold, there were, there holes, were holes right where they predicted them. Not only were there holes, but you could see where Joseph Smith had drawn out the figures on the papyri. Or, excuse me, on the canvas behind the papyri. Yeah, it's impressive. So, I mean, it, it's just, it's fascinating that... Uh, what the LDS Church did, because the university took these, and they gave them back to the LDS Church. And then the LDS Church took them to Egyptologists and said, now we have this, we want you to translate them so we can prove that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And in fact, they were getting their little magazine ready for like a three-month uh, showing of it. They want to do a whole spread, right? Because... Uh, Joseph Smith's translations were about to be verified by the best of science. And here, finally, is a test, right? Yeah. We don't have the golden plates. Uh, no one ever had the golden plates. No one ever. He didn't even need them, and that's really disappointing, right? You're, yeah. You're <laughs> translating stuff with the seer stones. You don't even hat. need the plates. I mean, it is ridiculous. Um, no one has the golden plates. No one's really seen them. You, you, you have these testimony of the eight witnesses, which you know Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery were taken out to a field, and they said that... They actually beheld it with their spiritual, spiritual eyes, eyes, but not their fleshly eyes, and which it, is a total cop out. Yeah, and in fact, one of them had to leave before yep. they could all see it, and then Joseph Smith went to him directly and said, okay, we're going to kneel here and pray until you see it. Exactly, and then they brought the other guy, so you'd repent for your sins and come back, and if you're forgiven, you'll see it. So what does the guy say? Of course, of course I, see, I it. see it. Yeah. Um, so now we have the original source documents. Yes, in 1970, what was it, 72, 73, they found it on the back of a painting. And so they took it to the church, and they said, well, here you go. And the church, like I said, they wanted this huge spread for it, and so they take it to these Egyptologists. Not a single Egyptologist would even verify what they wanted to say. Yeah, one of the facsimiles... Was, was called a, a hypocephalus, which means below the head. And you place this, uh, it almost looks like a, um, a plate or something, like a little dish yeah. in, a, in a scroll, a circle that you put underneath the head. So <clears throat> um, it tells you, I think it was the Book of Breathings, yeah. where you kind of um, resurrect from the dead. You turn around and look at that. It tells you how to breathe again and what the next yeah. steps are to go into the uh, afterlife. And curiously enough, uh, Joseph Smith didn't get any of that right No. No, not only that, but Joseph Smith couldn't have even told you that the hypocephalus has a blank spot there, and it's very common, so when somebody dies, they had tons of these around. They would just scrawl in the guy's name and stick it under his head. Right, it was big business back then. 
um, they'd get these scrolls and stuff, and you had really expensive ones for the pharaohs and nobility, and, and then it just really went cheap down ones. and down. It's like buying a coffin. Right, right. Um, fascinating stuff. Yeah. You know, when it's real, when it's real, this fake stuff really isn't interesting at all. Well, other it's than somewhat entertaining. How obvious and entertaining a fraud it is. Now, the interesting thing is. These Egyptologists said, no, all this is is a hypercephalus, everything is wrong here. And uh, so what the LDS Church did is they took it to a BYU, an actual Mormon. Yeah, that was John G., right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They take it to him, he's an Egyptologist, and they say, we would like you to translate these since no one else will. Obviously, everybody else was so wicked that they were trying to hide the fact that Joseph Smith was right. Well, this... LDS Egyptologist took a look at it and said, I can't do it. This is exactly what they're saying this is. You can't stay, I mean, even a Mormon Egyptologist cannot stake his academic credentials on backing up Joseph Smith. That would Smith. be suicide professionally. Because he's wrong. And if he was right, every Egyptologist would say, wow, I don't know how this happened, but here it is. He was accurate. And so what do Mormons say about it? Oh, well... These weren't the scrolls that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Abraham from. Uh, Hugh Nibley wrote like a 700-page book. To bore the shit out of you so you wouldn't yeah. know what was said. It's basically, his whole purpose is to, A, um, character assassinate uh, the Egyptologist who said that this is such a joke. Um, one of them <laughs> said it's difficult to deal seriously with Joseph Smith's impudent fraud, right? <laughs> Yeah, now it's this, not even the rest of it. this is the rest of it, though. This was Dr. Sace of Oxford University. The facil facsimile from the Book of Abraham, number two, is an ordinary hypocephalus, but the hieroglyphics upon it have been copied so ignorantly that hardly one of them is correct. I need scarcely say that Kolob or are unknown, uh, unknown to the Egyptian language. Smith has turned the goddess Isis into a king and Osiris into Abraham. Absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, and the, the other one where he's sitting in there and Joseph Smith says that he's holding court uh, for the Pharaoh and he's teaching the Pharaoh astronomy. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, oh, God, the guy, he, was, he, really? he is, <laughs> he's teaching Egyptian astronomy. Oh, you got to be shitting me. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, the guy he's identified as Abraham actually has the Pharaoh's hat. He's got the serpent and the vulture for um, upper, upper and lower, lower Egypt. Egypt. Uh, and he's identified in the hieroglyphics right above his head as the Pharaoh. So, I mean, it's uh, ridiculous. Unless the Pharaoh took his hat off and put it on Abraham, um, which, of course, I believe uh, quite a few Pharaohs would do. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure every time they had somebody so important, they would say, well, Here, sit on my throne. this is the power that binds me to Egypt. Here, Here put crown. it on your head. Uh, yeah, it was um, <laughs> the uh, crown of Upper and Lower Egypt is never buried with any single Pharaoh. No. Uh, they found Tutankhamun's tomb intact. And no crown. No crown. The this theory is a special was thing. They kept refurbishing the crown. And they, it, that was the one thing that wasn't didn't go to you with the grave. It went to each different pharaoh. There was probably only one crown ever at, at any one time. Anyway. Now that's fascinating. Actually. Yeah. Well, anyway, to get so, back on top, something so precious, I'm sure they would have just popped on yeah. Abraham's. Yeah, head. I'm sure uh, Pharaoh was sitting there going, "Hey, I, I don't even like this hat. Put it on." <laughs> Not very uh, important. Uh, but anyway, so basically, after the church goes to this Egyptologist, the BYU Egyptologist, and he refuses. They bury it. 
In fact, uh, what happened was... Yeah, I think the only thing they did was they put a picture of it uh, in the ensign. Yeah, they put a picture, but they weren't even intending on it. In fact, what happened was, is a newspaper down here, I believe it was the Salt Lake Tribune, got a hold of these pictures, and they were going to print it. And what happens is, is it, this information was leaked to the church, and so the church got a hold of this and decided they needed to get this out, otherwise it would look very bad on them. So they took the enzyme and they stuffed it into the middle of this. And in fact, if you look at the page numbers, it's improperly numbered because <laughs> they'll be talking about one thing and then, oops, look at all these hieroglyphics, and then they'll continue. Oh, so it was, it was such a last-minute decision that they had to stick it in there. I yeah, guess. it was completely stuffed. <clears throat> anyway, th this 700-page um, book by Nibley, um, so he assassinates a character, you know, it's, it's one chapter is an entire ad hominem. Uh, for these Egyptologists, right? Yeah. I'm sure they every single one of these with diverse backgrounds all have a personal axe to grind against Joseph Smith and Mormonism. Oh, yeah. They were all that evil. Yeah. And the rest of the book is just an attempt at obfuscating the facts. It's, it's more confusing than it is uh, anything else. Yeah. If they could get a single Egyptologist, even LDS, uh, to agree with Joseph Smith's translation, the book would have been five pages long. Yep. Look at this. This is what it says. We have proof. Now, the, uh, the most amazing defense I've heard where Mormons are concerned, where this is, is them saying that although Joseph Smith was looking at this papyrus, he was spiritually translating what God wanted him to see. Right. God works in mysterious ways. Again, um, that argument's only plausible if you're already Mormon. It, it's something you tell your Mormon friends who stumble upon this stuff. Yeah. Right? Uh, I've heard that, you know, Joseph Smith described it as hieroglyphs in the most beautiful red ink and that none of the stuff that we recovered was red and so therefore the book of Abraham was translated off a different still undiscovered scroll how convenient uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, Hugh Nibley I think compares in his book the book of Abraham to like the apocalypse of Abraham and say wow there are all these similarities between these two documents <laughs> hey Hugh the Apocalypse of Abraham was probably produced in the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. <laughs> it wasn't produced by Abraham himself or anywhere near. So comparing your uh, Book of Abraham document produced quite clearly in the 1830s uh, with something produced in the 2nd or 3rd century post-Christ is a little disingenuous. Yeah. Well, my biggest question is, why is God hiding himself from us so thoroughly? I mean, if... If, and a huge if, if Joseph Smith really was translating through spiritual eyes, why would God allow us to find these papyri again and then say, well, are you kidding me? This can't be true. The whole thing's ridiculous. Is God all-powerful or is he, not? is he really powerful? Even if he's really powerful, he could have preserved these documents, the real documents from Abraham, across two, three thousand years. Hell, he did it with the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Why couldn't he have done it with the Book of Abraham? Obviously, it wasn't on gold plates. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's it's just uh, ludicrous. The whole thing's ludicrous. I can't believe that anyone who looks into this stuff seriously can still buy it. And that is the crux of the situation. How many of those LDS or converting actually dig into this information? They don't. They, they buy the party line. Interestingly enough, with... Adam God, which we're going to talk in talk about next, it is so unknown now that um, people uh, see it as an anti-Mormon argument. Yeah, uh, it's 
false doctrine and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I remember talking to someone uh, I knew at the University of Utah who has been a Mormon all his life. And I said that, uh, well, you know, of course, that Brigham Young taught that Adam was our God and our father and the only one with whom we have to do, the literal father of Jesus Christ. No, that's ridiculous. He never taught that. Absolutely not. He placed a bet with me, and he never uh, never got back to me on that. Yeah. In fact, I didn't even hear of the Adam-God doctrine until my early 20s. Yeah, it's um, in fundamentalist circles where I came from, it's very common because you only have a few prophets to, to draw from, right? You've got yeah. Joseph Smith, you've got Brigham Young, John Taylor, and part of Wilford Woodruff. <laughs> Past 1890, they, they declare that it's over. They can still be good men and receive visions like, I guess, Joseph Fielding Smith yeah. did. And the Cast out covens. spirits, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that sort of thing. Um, but they can't speak for God anymore. And the Adam-God doctrine is so problematic that um, Hugh Nibley didn't even touch it. I mean, he wrote a 700-page book on the Book of Abraham, zero on the Adam-God doctrine. Well, it's, as we'll show you, it's indefensible. I mean, e even this, I take a look at this, this is indefensible. I mean, Egyptologists saying, yeah, you're full of shit, that is indefensible in my opinion. But obviously, Hugh Nibley doesn't even think that uh, Adam God is worth his 700 pages of boredom. Yeah. And here's the crux of the issue. With the Book of Abraham, you can close your eyes, plug your ears, nah, 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 I don't care what science says, I still believe. With um, Adam God, it's more problematic. It's your own prophet, and, and Mormons have this doctrine where when the prophet speaks to the church and he gives doctrine, it's infallible. He's just like the Pope. He can't be wrong. Yeah. Uh, the Every Lord would, word is gold. Right. The Lord would never suffer the leader of church to, to lead the people astray. This is the final dispensation. That couldn't happen. Um, so and Joseph Smith says the identity of God is the first principle of the gospel. And I think Brigham Young said much the same thing. So if uh, Brigham Young is wrong, if he's right that Adam is God, then the current church is wrong. You can't be Mormon because your church has fallen away. If he's wrong... Well, Brigham Young led the church for 33 years. That was the longest any president prophet has held the office. So God sure took his time getting rid of him. Yeah. And during that whole time, if he was wrong, Brigham Young's praying to the wrong God. And he is giving priesthood through an idol, the wrong God. There is no priesthood power for those 33 years. It's gone. <laughs> so nothing following Brigham Young can have priesthood. You're laying an axe to the root of the tree. Yeah. He's either right or he's wrong. Both ways you're screwed. But we'll get into that next week. So thank you again for joining us, and we hope we didn't bore you to sleep and uh, lose all of you. We hope we still have two.